0: coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Dan does a deep dive into the GitLab postmortem. We've got the latest on just who has access to your personal emails. And did you know that Transport for London has been tracking your Wi-Fi? We've got all the details, a packed roundup, your feedback, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. To this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on February 14th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three very fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. With me this week and every week is our co host. Actually, he's the host. I'm the co host. What am I saying? He's the admin, the organizer, and the explainer. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Hello, Wes. And Actually, thank you
0: very much for sacrificing your Valentine's to be with me. It's a wonderful yes. Valentine.
1: It is, isn't it? And you, I thought you were the host.
0: Well, I'm the host. Maybe we're both the hosts or the co-host. I don't know. You're you're the explainer, though, and that's what's most important.
1: You're my co-host, and I'm your co-host.
0: Yes. Okay. It ma- it warms my heart. Yes. Well, how have you been?
1: Very good. New hardware is arriving every week. Apart from one person who didn't ship that cable. I'm waiting for that cable. eBay seller, you know who you are. Ship that cable. I need it for my UPS. You're Thank on you very Dan's much. list. I, yes. I wouldn't want to be there. Ugh. I'll name and shame if it doesn't ship by tomorrow.
0: So there's another person whose list I wouldn't be on, and that's the author of our first story this week, our friend, Krebs on Security. So what do we got first up
1: this week? Well, email privacy is a big deal. Yes, it um, is. There's been a lot of talk lately about people um, having to surrender their phones, having to surrender their laptops. And this this sort of fits into it, but sadly, it's an entirely different case when you're crossing the border. So, the US House of Representatives on Monday approved a bill that would update the nation's email surveillance laws so that federal investigators are required to obtain a court-ordered warrant for access to older stored mails now that bit about older is important because under the current law US authorities can legally legally obtain stored emails older than 180 days using only a subpoena issued by a prosecutor or an FBI agent without the approval of a judge now most people don't know that it's it's gained more Lime—it's been more in the limelight the past few months or so. Right. But it it is really a big deal, and I think I first heard about it when um, the FBI was trying to get into that uh, Apple iPhone. Um, Basically, this is under a law from 1986. Um, What we'll get into that just just down here, Um, but. As a system administrator, you should be aware that if you store mail anywhere for you or for others, um, you could wind up getting a subpoena for this type of thing. And you just have to hand over that email. You have no choice. You have to hand it over. Um, But that's only if it's on your servers. If it's on your own laptop or on your cell phone, this doesn't apply. So long as it's not on the server. This is only about email that's on a centrally stored server. So you
0: need to be running a server for other people, or even yourself, perhaps.
1: Uh, I don't think this would apply. Uh, I think this only applies to mail in transit, so they call it. Um,
0: I see. um, So you're operating as a middleman in the mail delivery system.
1: And by by what I said as in transit, that's not actually correct. It's more along the lines of, if you're storing mail for someone else, because this came from, the law was written up in the days of store and forward. No one actually stored the email nice. on a server. There is no cloud. There is nothing like that. Um, uh, back to the days of pop.
0: Isn't it amazing when that you're... we still have the same email system today, by and large? I mean, there's differences, of course, but.
1: But we, we store it. And that's what this amendment is, is trying to um, trying to address, the changes that have occurred. So, the House passed by a voice voice vote, the Email Privacy Act, H.R. 387. The bill amends the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the ECPA, which is a 1986 statute that was originally designed to protect Americans from Big Brother and government overreach. Now, this H.R. 387 is actually a very short um, piece of of legislature. It's just basically an amendment. It, I, I, I looked it up. It's, it's one page. You could read it in, in, in five minutes. You may not understand it, but you can read it. <laughs> basically, it's a copy. It's doing a copy-cut pasting into the existing act. So really, you have to read the old act in the context of the the new act in the context of the old act. Now, this, um, the old ECPA, um, was done in a time when email and pagers and and stuff like that was becoming much more prevalent. And they had all these laws around which would allow you to deal with wiretaps of telephones, which was very understood technology. So here here they are trying to deal with email, which is now a, a very new thing, and they want to be able to give people the right to read this email. So... Uh, unfortunately, the law is so now outdated that it actually provides legal cover for the very sort of overreach it was designed to prevent. Um, online messaging was something of a novelty when law- lawmakers were crafting ECPA, which gave email moving all over the network except essentially the same protection as a cell phone or a postal letter. In short, it required the government to obtain a court-ordered warrant to gain access to that information. But the U.S.
0: <laughs> Which, I mean, that kind of sound, sounds reasonable, especially at the time, you know.
1: It, it, it does, but with all these laws where you try to very, very specific about something, it winds up having unintended consequences. Right. and then I subject that, to
0: interpretation in the future.
1: And, and it comes out in this next bit. But the U.S. Justice Department wanted different treatment for stored electronic communications so stored as opposed to delivered. They were trying to differentiate between stored and delivered. However, delivered now, in in, in my viewpoint, has a very different aspect. Right. It's not sitting over there. It's still stored on the server, but it's been delivered to me.
0: Right. I, um, I didn't fetch it like, with pop or whatever.
1: It's, yeah. it's sitting yeah. on Google servers. So. It's still sitting there. Yeah. So they wanted special uh, treatment for stored data. Congress struck a compromise decreeing that after 180 days, email would no longer be protected by the same warrant standard and instead would be available to the government with an administrative subpoena without requiring the approval of a judge. So we really need to update our privacy laws to eliminate uh, what this is called. It's called um, third party doctrine. And it holds that anything which you give to a service provider or that a service provider collects as part part of providing you with a service can retain no reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, expectation of privacy is a key point here. Uh, I remember, believe it or not, I first came up mm-hmm. with this by watching a Law & Order episode where two suspects were sitting in the back of the car with the doors open. And they, they had a. a a listening device, listening to them. And it revealed very crucial evidence. But it was ruled that they had no reasonable expectation of privacy since they're in a car with the doors open, talking.
0: Right. A person on the side of the street could have reasonably overheard their conversation.
1: Maybe. I I still think it's kind of sneaky. But the reasonable expectation of privacy is, is the measure by which everything is evaluated. So, um, without the approval of a judge, no reason, yeah. So, HR's sponsor, um, HR three eighty seven sponsor, Kevin Yoder, who is a Republican from Kansas, explained in a speech on the House floor Monday that back when the bill was passed hardly anyone stored their personal correspondence in the cloud he said the thinking at the time was that if an individual is leaving an email on a third party server it was akin to that person leaving their paper mail in a garbage can at the end of the driveway and this is something that comes up time and time again if you throw something out in your garbage that garbage it, it has no expect you have no expectation of privacy of your right. garbage Because you've put it at the end of the drive, anything in there, it's not private anymore. So, so shred your your private private documents if you're
0: concerned, or other secure methods of disposal.
1: Don't put it in the garbage. So, thus, that individual had no reasonable expectation of privacy in regards to that email under the Fourth Amendment. So that means that email stored on your server in your home has different protections than email stored in the cloud. Wow. So email on your laptop and only on your laptop. I'm not talking about an IMAP server here mm-hmm. because that's still on still on the server unless the server is also at home. has different protection than email that you've stored, say, with a third-party provider. That email, after 180 days, uh, with an FBI subpoena or... So I forget what the other one was, but just with a subpoena, right. a judge is not involved, that email can be wow. collected from the provider. So email at your colo does not have that same protection as the email on your, on your cell phone or on your laptop at home. So... A senior staff member with the Electronic Frontier Foundation said a simple subpoena also can get law enforcement the following information about communications records, in addition to the content of emails stored at a service provider for more than 180 days. It was basically your name, address, uh, local and long-distance telephone uh, connection records, or records of session times. And this is all metadata. They can gather all this metadata. So, where have we heard that before? What's so important about metadata?
0: Yeah, it surely it doesn't l- reveal anything about, you know, who you correspond with or your activities.
1: Possibly not. No, couldn't. So, a lot of conclusions are, re- are reached based on metadata. And seriously, th- this has to stop. You-, you can't go collecting all this private information about people. About It's basically revealing who they're talking to, when, from where, all that stuff—this
0: this is right. you can personal build a whole data graph of their of their life.
1: It sh- should not be collected without a judge and a warrant. Yes, so, the the new act, the Email Privacy Act, does not force inveti- investigators to jump through any additional hoop for um, accessing so called metadata, but. Under the ECPA, the transactional data associated with communication, such as dialing information, showing what numbers you called, was treated as less sensitive. And the old act, the ECPA, allows the government to use something less than a warrant to obtain this routing and signaling information. Signaling information is a new term. And that's something that that you know really has to be looked at as well. Now, just let me check. Yes, okay. So... Now, here's where it's good to live in California. The rules are slightly different in California, thanks to the passage of Cal ECPA, a law that went into effect uh, just last year. It not only requires California government entities to obtain a search warrant before obtaining or accessing electronic information, it also requires a warrant for metadata. Go, California. That's awesome. This is really good. Now... The key point there is that's only California government entities. So if it's a federal, it's a federal entity, this is not going to save you. It, does, it doesn't doesn't help you. Activists who've championed ECPA reform for years are cheering the House vote, but some are concerned that the bill may once again get hung up in the Senate. Last year, the House passed the bill in a unanimous 419 to one to zero vote. Sorry, wow. But the measure stalled in the upper chambers of the Senate. What's up with the Senate? Yeah. Do they not care about it's this? Not them? It's not important them. It's not like it
0: hasn't been in the news and doesn't affect real people.
1: The EFF uh, said that they're worried that the bill heading to the Senate may not have the support of the Trump administration, which could hinder its chances in a Republican-controlled Republican chamber. I don't think they're going to pass that. No, probably not. This. The Senate is a different story, and it was a different story last year when Democrats had more votes. Whether the bill even gets considered by the Senate at all is bound to be an issue again this year. I feel, uh, this is a quote, I feel a little wounded because it's been a hard fight. It hasn't been an easy fight to get this far. Uh, The U.S. government is not in the habit of publishing data about subpoenas it has requested and received. But several companies that are frequently on the receiving end of such requests do release aggregate numbers. For example, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter all publish transparency papers. They're worth a read. Uh, Are you familiar with the term? uh, I cannot remember what it is. A federal security letter? Um, National Security Letter? Is yeah, that what it is? Basically, you get one. You're not allowed to tell anyone you've got one. You just have to act upon it. Right. Right. So this is a very powerful legal document.
0: It comes with this, like a built-in gag order type thing.
1: Yes. You're not allowed to say that you've got one. You're not allowed to say that you're following one. So what some companies do now is they place a page on the website that, says, that contains a phrase, we are not subject to any security letters.
0: Ah, uh, like a warrant canary type situation where you can yes, where you can remove that the second you have become one without remove it, hopefully, having a legitimate argument that you have not stated that you have you were under one, you're just chosen to lo- no longer include that as part of your website. It's a design choice. The designers' didn't, never liked how it sat on the page anyway.
1: I like it. Uh, I also seem to recall a company might have been a an email company who shut down shortly after removing something like oh, that. Uh, a love bit, I believe. I don't know. Something like that. I, I think Alan was talking about it. I don't listen to TechSnap anymore, by the way.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, it's one less thing you can do. Yes, I think it was LavaBit. Uh, yes, and it closed in August of 2013, it looks like, after after receiving those and not being able to comply and not wanting to get you know sued into the ground or not, imprisoned.
1: Not being able to comply or not wanting to comply? That's what a good was question. Let's see. I'm wondering, did, did, didn't they have absolutely no, There is no way they could comply because they weren't keeping the records requested?
0: Yeah, let's see. Wired speculated that Levinson was fighting a warrant or national security letter. Levinson stated in an interview that he responded to at least two dozen subpoenas over the lifetime of the service. Uh, he hinted that the objectionable request was for information about all the users of LavaBit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good. Good man.
0: Yeah, exactly. Better to uh, stop than to continue to operate in a way where you could violate people's privacy.
1: Uh, speaking of privacy, this article finishes with the following For a primer on protecting your communications from prying eyes and some tools to help preserve your pro- po- privacy check out the EFF's Surveillance Self-Defense Guide. And I had a quick look through it, and it is a good read. I don't think it actually gives any... Spe- it doesn't actually endorse any specific tools that I could see, but I was just skimming through it. Oh,
0: I like this, yeah. Want a security starter pack? It's nice to yeah. kind of have one place you can maybe refer people. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got tutorials here, some overviews, briefings. Yes. I like that. That's awesome.
1: For anyone that has no familiar, is not at all familiar with security, this is a good read.
0: And I think especially important as we we're talking about how, you know, assumptions may have changed. Maybe you've used email before, maybe you email is important and you're kind of scared by the revelations of, you know, the ongoing surveillance mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. But especially if you're less technical, don't understand the details. It can be hard to understand like, well, how does the email that I'm reading, where does it get to me? What servers does it live on? What are the complex systems I interact with and yep. where should I be most concerned? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, EFF does great work. I'm glad that they exist.
1: That's another place you should be donating money. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, any uh, takeaways or other thoughts on, the, uh, on this bill?
1: Privacy in general is very, very important. What is also important is protecting privacy when crossing borders. Mm-hmm. Um, your rights must be preserved when they're crossing borders, but they aren't. That just doesn't exist there. So just just be careful. There's a lot of stuff out at the moment in terms of how to protect things when you're border crossing. Right. Be
0: prepared for your device to be surrendered. Possibly don't. You know, be very careful about what data, if any, you're bringing across with you on in unencrypted formats or in yeah. ways that might reveal information about you or your loved ones.
1: It, it. I. I don't believe it happens very often, but it does happen.
0: Right. And that's uh, definitely definitely something to be aware of. Well, it's uh, interesting to see. If you want to go, go more, know more about that, uh, head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can check out our show notes there. Uh, or, of course, just go to Krebs straight up and uh, read some of his excellent work or read this article for yourself. I think with that, that brings us to our first sponsor this week, which is IX Systems. You know, maybe you're an admin. You're responsible for hosting the email for your company. Or, you, or, you know, maybe you're using a cloud solution and you're a little uh, concerned about that and you'd like to switch to something that you can control more directly, your first stop should be www.ixsystems.com slash What is iXsystems? iXsystems is the hardware provider you wish you had found out about years ago. They sell incredible custom servers powered by amazing Intel processors. They've got straight-up deals with Intel. They have access to pretty much whatever processor you need. Latest and greatest, Perfect. Super powerful Xeon from a couple years ago with just the right chipset chip and architecture that you need. Yeah, they've got that too. Don't waste time. Don't go to some big big box vendor and you start having to realize, oh, well, you know, I want this model, but it's a little too powered or it doesn't have enough this or ah, the configuration slightly wrong, but the, the lower one, it's, it's not good enough either. Now, if you're in that situation, you should be going to iX Systems. They've got a fleet of talented sales engineers ready to talk with you. Most vendors, you start going into constraints, you start talking about budget, start talking about technical things, you start realizing the person on the other end of the phone isn't keeping up. You get worried. Suddenly, you're back in the camp where, well, I'm paying you, but I have to start solving these problems now. With iX, they're going to make sure that your entire buying experience is easy, and they know what they're doing. They've done it before. Just look at this list of sponsors, or people they've worked with, their their customers. we got Mozilla, Adobe, VMware, NOAA, NASA, SEGA. Maybe you just need, you know, just a FreeNAS mini you want to back up at home or in the small office, or I need something bigger like a TrueNAS. I Me, mean, I like to go check out their blog. Another great thing about IX is they work with the community, right? So, boom, now they've just they've just integrate they've just worked on something I thought was great. They have the IX University, right? So you want to get started with FreeNAS? Maybe you love what they do with OpenZFS. Now they've got IX University courses. Get started. Module 101, Introduction to FreeNAS. 30 minutes, kind of shows about your many, the many capabilities, gets you started with ZFS basics, kind of compares ZFS versus hardware RAID, and that's what shows you that IX systems, they're the best in the business. They know what the truly intergrade file systems are. They know about open source. They know how to make these things work together, and they want to help them work together to work for your business. So go check out IX Systems today. Go to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. That lets them know that you appreciate them supporting the TechSnap program. Give them a call. You will not regret that you did. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. All right. With that, our next story. What do you got for us, Dan? Tracking. Oh, oh. I'm sensing a theme on today's show and not a theme I like.
1: So tracking while you're going to and from work, while you're in public transit. Um, fortunately, this, this was announced and you were able to opt out of it if I you see. wanted.
0: But, yeah, so this is not secret, tra- a different type of tracking, not secret tracking, correct. tracking for hopefully a legitimate public pers- purpose.
1: So the title of the post is, here's what um, Transit for London learned from tracking your phone on the tube. Oh, interesting! It is interesting, and there are some points that came out of here that were uh, that I did not expect to be hearing about. It some nice little uh, side tidbits. So, it was at the end of last year, between twenty one November and nineteen December, Transit for London carried out, out carried out an intriguing trial. It was going to track your phone on the London Underground. Today, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, Gizmodo UK can exclusively, exclusively reveal some of the utterly fascinating findings that the agency has been able to make from all of our data and how the plan, if a trial is deemed a success and tracking is implemented full time, is and how the plan is to use all this data, is also to use the data to inform advertising decisions on the tube network. So, again, it's all about money. A lot of the things that we hear yes. about and read about, it's all about money. There's no sense in doing this unless there's money involved. Mm-hmm. but it's it, it's not it, it, it's not to the extreme that it sounds. it's It's not just uh, advertising and money, but
0: not quite anyway. so nefarious
1: no, it, it's it's not as evil as it sounds. It, it's actually rather interesting where and why the trial took place. This four-week period was merely a pilot project, baby steps to test the water and see what could be learned, as well as, presumably, what the backlash would be like once passengers knew that TFL was hovering up data from hoovering. I forget about that word. It's not ho- uh, another word for vacuums in the UK and Britain and uh, Uh, Australia is Hoover. Hoover. It's like a Hoover. It's a generic name. It's a brand name that's become a a, a generic word like tissue paper.
0: Tissue paper or cleaner.
1: Yeah, exactly. Skadoos. Okay. Uh, Hoovering up data from phones and whether or not they are connected to TFL's Virgin Media Wi Fi network or not. Wisely. It was accompanied by a publicity campaign which included posters and stations and articles in the metro so that passengers would at least be informed that it is happening rather than being horrified months later when somebody spills the beans.
0: Oh, yeah, and here's what that looks like.
1: They've got the poster right there. So, advertising. uh, They mentioned advertising, but I can see how this is going to be useful for more than just advertising. Traffic flow, for one. And knowing about time from A to B, um, and I know the easy pass. Do they have easy pass out there? No, probably not. Uh, easy pass is a uh, um, uh, a device you fit in your windscreen and basically identifies you, and it charges your car when it goes through toll booths.
0: Oh, sure, yeah, we have something like that in
1: Washington here. All right. So what they also do is they have monitors at various places along the road, and you can see them. It's just a pole with a monitor with a little signal device on top. And what it does is it says, there's one. And then it signals up ahead, and there's another one. It says, there it is. Nice. This is how long it took to go from A to B. So they know what the traffic flow is like.
0: Right. You can start computing statistics on that. You've got like live streaming information in real time. Yep. Wow.
1: And I'm, I'm sure they had to go through... Some ethical, legal thing to make sure that they're not storing any particular details. Right. Despite the fact that it's stored here and there, you're not uh, actually allowed to prosecute anyone for exceed, exceeding the speed limit based on the information you get from EasyPass.
0: Oh, nice. See, that's a very reasonable control where we can use the you know that information for public benefit, but without compromising.
1: Again, some things I learned from watching Law and Order. Huh. Now. Um, They put up the signs. There's the signs. So to have had your data collected in the trial, all you needed to do was to have your Wi-Fi switched on. Then the various Wi-Fi hotspots around the tube network would be able to pick up your phone or tablet or laptop or whatever. It would pick up the unique MAC address that enables you to be identified. Now, the MAC address is associated with your device, but given a Mac address in isolation, it doesn't identify the person. There's no master lookup list of this Mac address belongs to Wes. <laughs> right this on. one belongs to Dan.
0: I picked up my laptop it's, at Best Buy. They get the big master list out. They write my name
1: down with the Mac address. Right. Yeah,
0: Exactly. Well, I'm thankful that does not exist.
1: I got my name removed from that list. Oh, wow. how'd you do it? I can't tell you. Ah, Dan. Maybe on the next week. Ask for feedback, everyone. The good news for the paranoid is that TfL appears to have gone out of its way to make sure everything is above board. In the documents that Gizmodo UK has seen, it makes clear that it is only MAC data that's collected, are either not monitoring the websites you visit and that this data is stored as encrypted hashes. So even if the hackers could somehow break in and collect the collected and obtain the collected data, they wouldn't be able to get any MAC address data itself. What do you think? Do you think they'd be able to get MAC data from that? It
0: seems like there's a reasonable way, if, if they did it properly, to lose that information in a way where they could keep statistics. But all, of course there could be a, a hole in that or a flaw, or you know, if you, if you did something quite the wrong way or you didn't encrypt it properly.
1: If they're doing it with an encrypted hash... Are you familiar with rainbow tables? Oh yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. And I mean you could so, certainly look up. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point.
1: Why use an encry- why use a, an encrypted hash? Why not just say okay, this MAC address goes goes to number 1. This MAC address right. goes to number 2. All you need is throw, a mapping, really. And then throw right. away this is the first MAC address we collected, this is the second one, and then throw away the MAC address. Don't store it as encrypted. I know that's maybe why they had to do it somehow, mm-hmm. but they could have gotten rid of it.
0: Really want to throw away as much information as possible.
1: Yeah, but then that prevents them from seeing the same person twice. Mm-hmm. So they've point. got a collection of data, they analyze it, and then they throw it away, but it prevents any future analysis of the same MAC address. So
0: Interesting. It'd be interesting to see this, um, you know, analyze through the discussion behind how to do this in a way to maximize collectible information, minimizing personal identifiable information.
1: Yep. Hmm. As it was only a trial, only 54 out of 270 tube stations were involved. That's still quite a lot. That's one-sixth of all those tube stations, more than one-sixth. So mostly in Zone 1 and everything in the red patch below, apart from the Tottenham Court... Road, which didn't have Wi-Fi yet, probably because they're too busy building crossrail. So that's a big area of the tube. It doesn't look very significant, but that's, that's a huge area. Though, um, so as you can see, the trial did extend out further up the metropolitan and northern lines. According to the documents, the idea was to test whether a station being underground or not has an impact on Wi-Fi usage. If someone is at, say, Finchley Road, which is above ground, will they just use their phone's mobile signal, or will they connect? According to TFL's one-day analysis of Vauxhall Station, for every three people who touched in at the Oyster gate line, they saw, one person, they saw one person Wi-Fi device picked up by the Wi-Fi traps. That's a horrible read. This means that either the Virgin Media Wi-Fi is really popular or there are a lot of people out there walking around with their Wi-Fi switched on. I leave my Wi-Fi on all the time. I I, I hardly ever turn it off.
0: Yeah, the only time I turn mine off is when I'm frustrated because it's still on, like a, a you know, on a station far away, and I'm like, now nah, just go to LTE already.
1: I turn it off when I leave my house in the morning, and I'm listening to tune-in Radio. Mm, right. So I'm listening to live streaming radio because if I start listening over Wi-Fi, I'll get 100 yards from the house and it'll switch over to data and I'll have to hear that whole intro again. Uh, yes.
0: Right. Better to turn it off start the
1: Streaming service. We blah, 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 blah. No, sorry. Fix that. So, on to what they learned. So, one of the interesting things was route tracking. In other words, how do people get from A to B on the tube? And what trains do they take to get from A to B when there's more than one way to go? So perhaps the number one reason to do the trial was to better understand the journeys that people actually make in the tube. At the moment, TFL can tell what station you started and ended your journey at based on your Oyster card. That's that's the pass that gets you on. But it can't tell how you got between two stations. It sometimes supplements this data with a rolling origins destination survey to figure out specific routes, but this is done manually, which is expensive and time-consuming. Now, this is this next one is where the British humor comes in. So, one immediately obvious benefit of the Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi data being collected is being able to collect the same data much faster on a much larger scale for a fraction of the cost. If you look at the slide below, you can see how popular different routes between Liverpool Station and Victoria are. So on the top left, it says if you travel via Oxford Circus, you can do the same as 44% of the other people. But if you sit lazily on the circle line, you do... The same as about 26% of the people making the same journey. And if you change twice, once at Holborn and again at Green Park, then congratulations, you're a psychopath. So that's basically only (laughs) 2%. Wow. So. I'm sure people have very good reason for doing it that way, maybe. They don't like the trains on the other line.
0: Right. And see, um, this is kind of the start of like, you know, it may just be exactly like that, or maybe it's something, you know, how it doesn't serve them well with time. You know, it, this can identify things that you could then go study further time alone
1: yeah. yeah. Now, what I like is the 1% who, who took Liverpool to, to e- Euston Square and then walked over and then took down to Victoria. That That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Maybe it's nice and scenic.
1: So according to one document the inclusion of Finchley Road to Wembley Park section the inclusion of this section from the on the Jubilee and Metropolitan lines they run next to each other the Jubilee just stops at more stations in between it was deliberately included in order to observe customer behavior when there are two options where one is obviously faster than the other so this distance takes 5 minutes on the Metropolitan line and 12 minutes on the Jubilee So TFL even checked this if this data was accurate by matching it up with actual train timetables and was able to demonstrate how on one journey southbound down the Victoria line, they were able to match the Wi-Fi data of one passenger and figure out which specific train they were traveling on.
0: Oh, nice. Wow. So
1: that's pretty, uh, this is really good. I really (laughs) like this. So people may say, oh, no, you're tracking me. No, they're tracking that Mac, Mm -hmm. tracking that Mac address, don't. Don't get as upset as you are. So the upshot of this is fairly obvious. As TFL says, by using Wi-Fi data merged with aggregated oyster and contactless ticketing data, we, we, we would have a far richer data source to ensure optimal and evidence-based decision-making for a wide range of planning decisions. In other words, it helps us decide how to do things.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: So, if most people are taking this route, which is longer, there must be a reason for it. So, on to the next topic, which was in-station tracking. Where do people go and how long does it take them? So, it isn't just travel across the whole network that can be tracked by Wi-Fi. It's even possible to track your location within an individual station, presumably by working out which access point that you're closer to, this means that TFL can use the data to make cool maps like this. And the darker areas are the ones with more people, and the lighter areas are the ones with less people. And what's interesting is that some of these areas are escalators. So I'm guessing that I don't know which one is down and which one is up, but I'm going to guess that the one with up has more people. Yeah, that's a good because question. Because I'm thinking, uh, if I looked closer at the map, I'd be able to find out. So this is a heat map, and it shows where passengers walked around the station. Comparing this to the excellent 3D tube map, I did look at it, from the station master app, reveals that the busiest platform, by quite some margin, is the southbound Victoria Line. Now, I find that interesting. So mm. why would that be so much busier than, say, the northbound? or the, I guess that's where you're going. TFL hopes that this data would be able to analyze crowding. For example, the Northern Line was included in the trial as the two branches enables them to compare how the city and Charing Cross branches impact each other. The documents also seem to suggest that if TFL switched on tracking full-time, it could offer real-time crowding information to to passengers. So we could see a city mapper of the not-too-distant future telling us which stations to avoid. That seems okay. That seems reasonable. It's Don't go of, here; it's really crowded. Try this station down the road.
0: It's kind of it reminds me of uh, what Google's doing with the same thing. With I'll kind of advise you on your phone. This is uh, this is how many people we see right there.
1: I was going to mention that ways in Google Maps do that, right? So as you're driving down the road with the Android phone, it sends information back to Google saying, "Oh, they're on this road. This is where they are now. Oh, this is where they are now." And so they know how long it took you to go from A to B. So that's how they identify congested roads. Mm, TFL also thinks that the crowding data could be used to inform decisions on how many staff are needed at each station and in what role. So, yeah, um, there's all these people there. They're on this line. They're going north. Well, we need people there to deal with that. Uh, Apparently, there's a problem when some uh, ticket offices closed across the tube network, and it was a huge controversy. So the in-station tracking enabled TFL to work, the, work out the average travel times between different parts of stations. Pictured above is Victoria, which reveals that it takes on average 86 seconds to take the escalator from the ticket hall to the Victoria Line platform and 67 seconds to walk along the platform from end to end. Now, what was interesting is it took... took 86 seconds to get down but only 69 seconds to get up so i can't that's i don't understand why it's it take less somewhat you know four or five seconds i could see but mm-hmm. it's a good 16 seconds slower going down than it is going up
0: yeah that's weird
1: listeners those of you in at victoria station we want to know yeah please go check it out please us.
0: Oh, this is, this is really interesting data. Uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest, we're kind of just getting our, we call them the light link light rail stuff. We're just getting that kind of built out. They don't, they have Wi-Fi in the station. So I wonder if they're doing the same thing or if they've considered doing it. They don't have Wi-Fi in, like when once you're actually underground and that sort of thing, but they are working with some carriers to put in stuff. So I guess it would open up similar grounds, but they wouldn't have, I'm, I'm envious now that they have all of this same in-plane data that they can work with at once.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I do like having uh, Wi-Fi in the subway because there's not much else to do.
0: Yeah, right, you're sitting down, unless you brought a book, you're you're kind of screwed. Do you carry books? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When I have room in my bag, if I have a bag, right, I'm not just, yeah, so. I, I try to anyway, just for situations like that.
1: I haven't carried a book in a very long time.
0: Well, I don't currently have a kindle so i guess uh guess that's why i'm back to uh, hardcover books
1: hmm. i need to start reading again huh. all right so back to the original claim of advertising right in what will no doubt be the most controversial aspect of the trial the possibilities of using the data to inform advertising are a big motivation and to be fair tfl you can understand why tfl is under increasing increasing financial pressure Blah, 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 blah. They talk about the blah, blah. So could Wi-Fi tracking provide the extra cash to pay for this big fare freeze? It might. Being able to estimate the footfall in different parts of each station and even roughly how long you'll be staring at each advert means that they can offer differential pricing depending on how good each advertising slot is. And being able to demonstrate customer journey pattern volumes will enable... Advertising assets to be sold on a campaign level where the customer views the same advert. Well, imagine Uh, you're walking down the hall and you see the same advert here and then 10 seconds later you see the same advert there. Or like the next piece of it. it. Well, have you ever seen posters uh, say on a telephone pole, there's only one copy, but then you walk along a construction site, and there's a whole wall plastered yeah. with the same poster. Totally, and you notice the whole wall easier than the single one on the pole.
0: That's an, that's an interesting way to do kind of like um, time slicing, but where you can, you know, you could then sell it as a yes. You know, we can estimate that this number of customers will have seen it by walking through. Here's the flow rate, and
1: yeah, hmm. so. The think on advertising has gone into some detail too. The docs reckon the data could also be used to choose which advertising slots on the tube could be upgraded to digital displays next and using the timing data, even decide how long each digital ad will be displayed before switching to the next one. So, if we leave it on for 10 seconds, this many people will see it and then if we switch to this ad for another 10 seconds, it's another group of people coming out. And I reckon if they, if they time that for, um, often there's uh, people coming out of the out of the the tube area in a right, in a rush. Bunches, yes, right. Because the train just arrived. Totally. Whereas as people are walking in, that could be ra- that's more of a random distribution. That's more of a random. So if you have displays that face out of the tube and displays that face into the tube, you would display different things depending on how many people are wow. coming by. Interesting. I like this. I
0: like this as I think, well.
1: I like this. And I, I, I,
0: this next I this section is
1: interesting, though, I think it
0: kind of ties it up nicely.
1: Customer attitudes to tracking. Based on the documents we've seen, it'd be easy to write a scaremongering hit piece based on scary quotes about tracking and advertising. But what's interesting to see is the level of care TFL took before going through with the trial. For example, there are numerous numerous privacy assessments and different tasks are assessed for how long they'd use the data. In one document, it raises privacy concerns, pointing out that this new data could conceivably be mashed up with data from Oyster or CCTV to enable close tracking of individuals. If this wasn't done in this trial, this wasn't done in this trial, though it's clear that if they wanted to, TFL could conceivably create an Orwellian nightmare for Londoners so that if this does get switched on at full-time, it'll be something new for privacy watchdogs to keep a close eye on. So imagine the Wi-Fi saying, oh, there's Wes. He's on Platform 7. Quick, get the camera on him.
0: Right, yep. And or, you know, as um, <clears throat> as face recognition technology gets better, you, know, you start co- correlating all of that. Yep. Interesting.
1: Uh, I can see privacy advocates saying, you're not allowed to collect it you're not allowed to analyze it in real time you're not allowed to have anything which allows you access to data that, that's less than x minutes old oh, something right. like that yeah and
0: so that, you, in theory wouldn't be able to affect people or target people or you know in while they're actually using the service
1: <clears throat> yeah oh. interesting so What's interesting, though, is that the cache of documents contains the results of research that TfL commissioned from a country called 2CV aimed at analyzing customer attitudes to tracking their data, which makes for interesting reading. For example, it revealed that customers are much more okay about sharing data when they feel they are making an informed decision and that many people are apprehensive about mobile tracking because it is so new. The sharing of location data in particular is viewed differently to other private information too. It is clear that communicating the technology and raising awareness of its use will be critical in driving acceptance of TFL using it, the research notes. Apparently, once people understand the benefits, they are much more accepting of it. Now, consider that if someone said to you, that okay. Your phone's going to be telling us where you are and what speed you're going all the time. We want this information. We think it's very important for us to have. Please give it to us. No. Right. But if you said, "Hey, listen, what we're going to do with this information from your phone is we're going to feed it in into a um, a routing app for you, and it'll let you know based on everybody else's data." that you don't want to go down Main Street today. You want to take Third Avenue because Main Street is absolutely blocked with cars, but Third Avenue is clear. So go down that way. So put it into a GPS app and people will willingly give that information away. Yeah, right. Because they know that it's going to help them ultimately. And that's what Waze and Google Maps do. They collect that information.
0: Yeah. This is really just the the public sector version of that in many ways. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. And, and they're right. People will give you data if they're going to find it useful.
0: Yes, exactly. And especially, it's nice to see it. You know, it seems like the for this to be successful, that's what they need is, you know, good communication about what the proposed benefits could be, as well as good communication yep. about the clear limitations for how the data can be used, how the data is stored, for how long, all that.
1: Exactly. And it appears that they've done that. Uh, I... I'll get into that later, but it's always the unintended use of data yes, that, exactly. that bites you. So, perhaps the most intriguing uh, point was that TfL decided to f- focus group reactions not just with the Tube Wi-Fi tracking, but to other potentially trackable aspects of London's transit. Alt- unfortunately, all we have to go on is these two slides, but this doesn't mean we can't wildly speculate. For example, it proposes using Bluetooth to track vehicles in order to collect real-time congestion information. It also suggests that by using an app, a customer would be able to could share their data with TFL directly and have it automatically hooked up to their Oyster or congestion charging account. Now, Perhaps the most intriguing part of this is mobile phone tracking, which appears to be an ambition to do something similar in the tube tracking, but for all of London. Ooh. If TFL data, if TfL could get data from the mobile networks, it would know where we're traveling, to and from, which routes, and be able to better optimize cycle and bus routes. So this little diagram here talks about that. And I don't see this as being much different from Waze yet on a, just for TFL. Why, why not make use of Waze, which has an existing infrastructure for this?
0: Right, or like continue some of the, like I know uh, Google has and Waze have partnerships with, you know, for the reverse, for getting transit information about buses and trains. So maybe, yeah, you, know, you could do some sort of data sharing here.
1: Why set up all these Bluetooth sensors? That doesn't make sense to me at all. Doesn't doesn't at all.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that's a good use of uh, public money in this case.
1: Mm-hmm. As you can see above, the reaction to these different scenarios was mixed, with mobile tracking the, the foggiest by some distance. Conversely, everyone appeared to like the tube tracking idea, as it has both tangible tangible benefits for the customer, and it is obvious why TFL would need the data. So that's essentially what, what TFL has learned so far, and as far as we can tell. Just before publication, we reached out to them to find out what the plan is going forward and will it be rolled out more fully. A spokesperson told me that they're still assessing the data as the trial was only recently completed, but we shouldn't be surprised if this quickly becomes standard in the future.
0: So what do you think? Will you be concerned next time you're in London and riding the tube?
1: No. Yeah. I told you I got my MAC address removed.
0: Yeah, that's right. There you go. So...
1: But it all comes back, like collecting the information is one thing, um, but controlling access to that information is the important bit. Yes. And and as far as, you know, we've seen this many times in the past, uh, it's the use of that data for unintended purposes that causes the real concern. Um, And I point back again, as I had before, to what was in the New Zealand privacy uh, laws when I was living there, when it first came out, it said data can only be u- used for the purpose for which it was collected. And that's beautiful.
0: I really like that. That is very sensible.
1: So no selling your details off to someone else unless yep. you were told up front that, yeah, okay, this is what we're going to And, and I'm so not sure that can be done. That can, uh, but that wasn't the original purpose of collecting the data was to sell it to someone else, was it?
0: Right. Right. Yeah, right. And then, you know, later, if you're like, hey, this data, it looks like this data could probably be useful for this other thing. Well, go get the policies amended in a clear, transparent way. And then going forward, you can do that. But that way you don't, you can't go back. Data. Yeah, with the new
1: with data the new only. Data. Exactly. Not the, not the old data.
0: Yeah, which, ah, that just seems so sensible.
1: Yeah. Well, I w- are a sensible lot.
0: I will say, though, that the, um, the operational benefits of this are kind of intriguing uh, as someone who takes public transit fairly often. I do like I do like the things that they're able to learn. it's very interesting from like a data science and an analytics perspective the privacy uh, concerns though
1: yeah uh, if they keep that M- Mac data quiet and don't let that out mm-hmm. then it should be fine. I don't I don't see a downside to it yeah. And again people can opt out of it by turning off their Wi-Fi.
0: I was just about to say, yeah just you know turn off your Wi-Fi pull out your good old-fashioned book and you'll be fine. It's also Mac spoofing. Right, yes. Uh, and some of the chatroom uh, mentioned, some like I think Network Manager can do that now when it's, when it's scanning for Wi-Fi and other things. There's some things that will automatically reprovision a, a new or a fake Mac for you. So that's something to look into as well. I like that. Anything else you'd like to add on this one? Nope, that's it. Okay, so our next sponsor, guys. Maybe you're concerned about this. We've freaked you out a little bit. You're being tracked. Your phone knows where you are. The tube knows where you are. If that happens to you, oh, it looks like we lost Dan. That's fine. We'll carry on, and we'll get him right back after this. A message from Ting. So, you're, you're worried. You're being tracked. You want a spare phone. Ting is the place to go. Ting.com. TechSnap.ting.com. That's the URL. TechSnap.ting.com. What is Ting? It's mobile that makes sense. No BS. They're an MPNO. They have both GSM and CDMA. So no matter where you live, one of those two, it's going to work for you. And Ting's got phones for you. So Ting plans, they're different. They start at $6 a month, and they have crazy clear rates. Just go over to their rates page on techsnap.ting.com and check out this great interactive diagram. You can select how many lines you have. So maybe you've got your main phone, and then you want to have a second line for your tube phone, the, the tube phone that you just use when you're on the tube for browsing the Internet just to use the Wi-Fi, you want a little backup data connection, you don't use it much, Ting is perfect for that. Boom, two lines, that's only $12 a month. Let's say you don't use minutes at all. You don't use you don't use text messages because it's 2017. Then all that is just for your data, and they have very competitive rates. You need a ton of data, that's fine. Ting lets you do that. There's no contracts. There's no early termination fees. There's no bundling. You don't have to pay extra for the data that you want to tether with. They don't get in your way. They don't do any of that weird trickery where they're secretly downgrading your videos or charging you more or on a different allotment when you're using VPN traffic versus non-VPN. Ting gets it. They want to protect you. They want to protect your privacy. They're nerds just like us. There's also no overage charges or penalties. You don't have to guess ahead about what plan you want because it's pay for what you use. Plus, they're hip to our generation. They get it. You know, they don't... You know. Yes, you can call someone. Sure, use some of those minutes that you never use, but you don't need to because they have a great phone app and they've got a great website that just makes it easy to use. So start right now. Go over to textnap.ting.com. You can start really easy. Just start with a backup line or, you know, they have crazy cheap phones. Go over to their shop. Phones start really cheap. They're unlocked. They don't get in the way of upgrades. SIM cards only cost $9. And then you can get this Alcatel for, what, it starts at $45. So I should mention this. If you go over to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. Or if you want, maybe you're, you know, you got some nice taste, you come down here, you want to buy something a little fancier, I think this Moto G4, that's a pretty good deal for a pretty functional Android phone. They take $25 right off that. What are you waiting for? techsnap.ting.com. That brings us to our final main story this week. It's GitLab again. We've got a postmortem for you. Let's get into it, Dan.
1: Now, we covered this story last week. We covered the main item, and the one thing that I want to make uh, clear is that we're not making fun of GitLab yes. here. We're, we're we're not we're not mocking. We're not we're not pointing out the things they did wrong. We're going over the stuff that they talked about, and I will raise some points that uh, listeners may want to consider in terms of things that. Um, I think others should do, mostly because I'm doing them. (laughs) So, the article starts out. On 31 January 2017, we experienced a major service outage for one of our products, the online service GitLab.com. The outage was caused by an accidental removal of data from our primary database server. This incident caused the GitLab.com service to be unavailable for many hours. We also lost some production data that we were eventually unable to recover. Specifically, we lost modifications to database to database data, such as projects, comments, user accounts, issues, and snippets that took place between 1720 and 000 UTC on 31 January. Our best estimate is that it affected roughly 5,000 projects, 5,000 comments, and 700 new user accounts. Code repositories or wikis hosted on GitLab.com were unavailable during the outage, but were not affected by the data loss. GitLab Enterprise customers, Git Host customers, and self-hosted GitLab CE users were not affected by the outage or the data loss. Losing production data is unacceptable. To ensure that this, is, this does not happen again, we're working on multiple improvements to our operations and recovery procedures for GitLab.com. In this article, we'll look at what went wrong, what we did to recover, and what, what we'll do to prevent this from happening again in the future. So, postmortems are really good, especially if your goals include no blame. Yeah, exactly. That's what they're doing here. They're they're not attributing blame. They're just stating facts about what went wrong.
0: And it's important to do so, you know, within a good time frame of when the event happened so you can get, you know, impartial things. People remember what happened. I have good recollection to to break it down and you can really get a good document that you can use Mm -hmm. to learn and go forward and improve your practices.
1: And this is just two weeks after the outage occurred, not including the time it took them to recover. Yes, right. So to the GitLab dot com users whose data we lost and to the people affected by the outage we're sorry i apologize personally as gitlab's ceo and on behalf of everyone at gitlab now they go into a little bit about the database setup basically they use a primary and a secondary and hot standby boat um and are they using Postgres? yes they are okay my favorite database um so, basically, they have DB1 and DB2. In the past, they've had issues with this particular setup um, because it's still a single point of, uh, of failure, and they list the three things that happen. So, on the timeline. And the, ti- the, the timeline is interesting, and that, that's why I, w- I want to read through the timeline bit by bit so that people can have a better understanding of what actually happened because it's the order in which things happened and the time at which that happened, that's interesting. Uh, So on January 31st, an engineer started setting up multiple Postgres servers in our staging environment. The plan was to try out PG pool to see if it would reduce the load on our database by load balancing queries between the available hosts. Now, PG pool's a, a very good tool where if all you've got is queries, it'll come in like a load balancer and then say, okay, put this query over to that database put this query over to this nice. one and then over to this one and so that writes only go to the writes can go to say, the, master, the master and the then master you can distribute they're the oh, right neat that sounds reasonable be- because it doesn't really matter if in most most circumstances it doesn't matter if you're reading old data
0: right for the large most part it, it works just fine unless you have very yeah. weird concern yeah excellent
1: so they actually give a link to the plan, and I had a look at it just to see what was going on. So at 1720 UTC, all times are UTC, so I won't bother mentioning it again. Prior to starting this work, he took an LVM snapshot of the production database and loaded this into the staging environment. So there we have a complete backup of production now in staging. So this was necessary to ensure the staging database is up-to-date and blah, blah. Right. This normally happens once every 24 hours at one UTC. So, But they wanted a more up-to-date copy. All this is good. There's nothing suspicious here whatsoever. So uh, about an hour and a half later at 1900, they started experiencing an increase in, in database load due to what they suspect was spam in the week leading up to this git event, GitLab.com had been experiencing similar problems, but not this severe. So basically, it's assholes being assholes. Exactly. One of the problems that this load caused was that many users were not able to post comments on issues and merge requests. Getting the load under control took several hours. So that's just frustrating for the users as well. They're not just pissing off GitLab.com. They're pissing off people like you and me yeah, that they're they're in, in their the spare experience. time are trying to contribute to open source projects. Not cool. Stop at. We would later find out that part of the load was caused by a background job trying to remove a GitLab employee and their associated data. Now, initially, that sounds suspicious, and it was. This was a result of their account being flagged for abuse and accidentally scheduled for removal. More information regarding this particular problem can be found in this issue, which they linked to. now the name of the issue is removal of users by spam should not hard delete. And my first question is why was it ever hard delete? <laughs> yeah.
0: That's interesting. You think it like it, it would be good enough to put it into yeah. a queue, disable access for a while,
1: have a flag disable, yeah. you can't log in. Yep. Sorry. Load. We'll delete stuff later. It's not going to be taking up a lot of space. There's no rush to delete it. I
0: think, in general, that's a pretty good, a pretty good practice, and and makes things more transparent. You know, and when something's flagged disabled, you can tell that that happened. You, rows missing. What are you going to say?
1: Yeah, but but now they they've deleted all this guy's work. It's gone. Oh what God. if this had been a paying customer, for example? Yeah, I mean, sorry.
0: No, it's that's that would that's very frustrating. Mm.
1: So about mm, four hours later. Due to the increased load, the Postgres secondary's replication process started to lag behind. So, uh, really, what they've got is they got the master sending stuff to the secondary, but the secondary started to lag because there's so much work going on in the primary. The replication failed as wall segments needed by the secondary were already removed from the primary. Uh, what what it sounds like they were doing was wall log shipping. I'm not. Uh, I'm. This may be wrong. I may be wrong here, but basically, they needed the the right ahead logs from the primary. So they could be run on the secondary.
0: Right. That's what that was my interpretation.
1: After wall logs get a certain age, they get removed. And
0: so that means there's a maximum uh, amount of lag that you can tolerate before. It just won't work anymore.
1: Yep. So because GitLab was not using wall archiving the secondary had to be resynchronized manually. This involves removing the existing data directory on the secondary and running pg-based backup to copy over the database from the primary to the secondary. So one of the engineers went to the secondary and wiped out the data directory, which makes sense because you have to copy it over, and then ran ran pg-based backup. Unfortunately, pg-based backup would hang, meaning there is no useful output. And after a few tries, it mentioned that it could not connect to the master not having enough available replication connections. So I can imagine, I remember reading something from second quadrant about this last week, but I have a feeling that running it and then stopping it, running it and stopping it. Right. That I'm probably not left sure, a connection open without
0: properly. Did closing. that
1: leave connections open? Uh, yeah. uh, I may be
0: wrong, but it's definitely possible.
1: So to resolve this, they decided to temporarily ma- increase max wall senders from the default of 3 to 32. And then when def- applying these settings, Postgres refused to start claiming too many semaphores are being created. So that was also covered by the second quadrant post from last week. So well, eventually they got it started, uh, but it did not resolve the problem of pg-based backup not starting replication immediately. And one of the engineers defi- d- decided to run it with Trace, but it didn't say anything. It just said it was hanging on a poll call. So about half an hour later, they've been fu- they've been fussing around with host for half an hour. One of the engineers thinks that per- perhaps pg-based backup created some files in the Postgres data directory, at the secondary during the previous attempts. So let's go and clean up the secondary and try again. Well, normally, PG-based backup prints an error when this is the case. The engineering in question wasn't too sure what was going on, and it would later be revealed by another engineer who wasn't around at the time that this is normal behavior. For it to start up and wait for the primary to start sending data over, it'll just sit there and wait until that data starts. Unfortunately, this is not clearly data Documented in our engineering runbooks, and they give a list to the runbooks, which is basically, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if that happens? And it's a whole nice collection of documentation uh, that you need when the shit hits the fan, exactly, because you don't want to be figuring it out yourself.
0: This is not the time for trying experiments or running a bunch of commands that you don't know what they do.
1: So, trying to, trying to restore the replication project uh, process, an engineer proceeds to wipe the the Postgres database directory. Unfortunately, they weren't doing it on the secondary. They were doing it on the primary. He terminated the process after a second or two, but at this point, around 300 gig of data had already been removed. All I can say is what a horrible uh. feeling. Uh, just such a sickening feel. I've had this, I've deleted files as just yep. It's just a,
0: oh. I worked somewhere for a while. They had an incident they called spring cleaning uh, where a VM server had the same thing and just a bunch of machine images. And, you know, they're just gone. Yeah. Oh, so sad.
1: I feel sorry. A lot of sympathy for, for that person. Yes. So the next step, they, f- they figured they could restore the database. They went looking for database backups and asked for help on Slack. But both the process of finding and using backups failed completely. So now it goes on to the broken recovery procedures. So it gives a little outline of how every 24 hours PG dump is run and every 24 hours is a snapshot taken. And uh, on the NFS servers, they use disk snapshots and they have replication between the hosts. They all failed. None of them were working properly. So, When they went looking for the PG dumps, the S3 bucket was empty. S3 being an Amazon...
0: Simple storage service, I believe.
1: Oh, that's very clever. Thank you. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that. So this is where I mentioned the word monitoring checks. So if something is expected to arrive somewhere on a regular basis, create a monitoring check for it. Yes, definitely. I have 10 files here. The oldest one is two weeks old. It should be less than 24 hours. Something's wrong. Alert, alert, alert.
0: Yes, especially anything you know that has a regular frequency to it, makes it very easy to write those things.
1: Check to make sure it's, you know, four or 500 gig big.
0: Yes, not that it's just an empty file or, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. So then they found out other problems because it was using, this was failing because it was using PG dump two, whereas the database was nine six, but it didn't produce any errors anywhere. I think there was an email going out, but the problem with the email going out is that um, they used DMARC, and DMARC was not enabled for the cron job mails, resulting in them being rejected by the receiver, which means they were never aware that the backups were failing. Um, the problem was is is that it's a client-server setup, so PG dump can be run on the client or on the server. They were running it on the client. But Omnibus was trying to figure out which version of PG Dump to run, and it was on the client. And therefore, the file it was checking for was only on the server. And that's why I tried 9.2, not 9.6. Uh, so, yeah, you got to test on clients on servers. So, apparently, this thing was supposed to go to DMARC. It didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I was confused there for a while. They, why didn't they have something in DMARC checking for emails? But anyway, Right. so on to snapshots. Um, the only thing I have to say about these snapshots is I want to mention ZFS snapshots. It wouldn't be snap
0: if we didn't do that. Just, yep. We just have to. We're contractually yep. obligated.
1: So they weren't able to do anything with that. So on to LVM snapshots. So the LVM snapshots... Were able They were able to use them, but in order to generate a snapshot, they have to take a snapshot of production, copy the snapshot to staging, create a new disk using this snapshot, and remove all the web hooks from the resulting database to prevent them from being triggered by accident. So this is all the failures. Um, then they go into how they actually recovered it. What they did is they went to the LVM snapshot that the guy created six hours before the outage. Now, if that's correct, let me scroll up here. Uh, timeline. Yes. This is the engineer that was setting up PG pool. He's the one that took the LVM backup mm-hmm. snapshot. He's the one that really saved everything because that was the only copy of the data. Wow, the that only was the staging copy. one, right? Yep, because wow. they wiped out secondary. They wiped out primary. This data didn't exist anywhere else but the LVM snapshot. I can't imagine how, how they felt. Oh, this is the only way we can get it back.
0: I would then be tiptoeing on that staging server. Oh, oh man, that's crazy.
1: Now, so they talk about how they got it back. Uh... Scrolling, I've lost my place. Recovering github.com. So they copied the, they copied the staging server over in parallel. They copied another snapshot over. Then they set up a database server to use a snapshot from step one, another one to, from step two. Then they restored the webhook. Then they incremented all the database database sequences by a thousand. Postgres is a concept of a a database sequence, is like a little number you go in and you say, give me the next one, and it increments it and you use it somewhere in a table. So they just made sure that they didn't have uh, conflicting uh, primary keys that might get overwritten.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, just bump them all up and you know you're in a new new section.
1: Now, copying all the data over took about 18 hours. This was because they were not using premium storage. This is done primarily to save costs, as premium storage is quite expensive, but you see the disks are very slow, around 16 megabits per second. Oh, wow. That's that's not fast. That is not fast at all. So that's why it took so long to recover, 18 hours just to copy the data over. And this is on Azure? Yep. No network, no processor bottleneck, it was just the drives. Oh,
0: yeah, wow.
1: Just the drives. So... On February 1st at 1700, they managed to get the database back in without webhooks. And then they did some magic to get the webhooks in. And around an hour later, they finished the final bits and they confirmed everything was operating as expected. So I can't imagine there is so much waiting and just waiting and waiting and waiting. It would have been so stressful and hoping this worked. I can imagine how sick to death the guys that that did the just the wrong things at the wrong times.
0: Yep, and it can happen. I mean, it can happen to to anyone. Obviously, there were you know as we've in There's some things you can do to make this not happen better. Mm-hmm. Better. And tools. we mentioned
1: we mentioned this before. Well, we mentioned it last week. When you're working under stress, work with a buddy. Yes. I'm going to do this now. Confirmed. Read it. Yep. That's a great yes, use for your right. in-house
0: chat server, or if you can get someone right next to you no, and.
1: No. Right next to you, talking about you. You can you can share Tmux or screen sessions. Oh, yep. um, just be very careful of what you're doing, because remember, they had a primary, they had a secondary. The secondary was only lagged, so they deleted it to copy over the primary, but then they deleted the primary, so they had two copies. Right. It really one went was,
0: downhill fast.
1: One was all pure data. One had everything, except it was missing some things. One had everything. And then they deleted the one that was lagged, hoping to get the primary one over. In hindsight, create a third database server. Yeah, don't delete anything. We're, you've already lost some stuff. Don't delete anything.
0: Especially if you're in an environment where you know you're in a cloud type environment where it's really easy—you just spin up a new machine, get it going. They already have to do that.
1: I don't know if that—if the, these are, are these. Yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't, I don't. I don't know either. But if you do have those techniques, it does make it a lot safer pay the extra expense for a couple hours or days, and then you can, you know, they, get rid of it if you need to. <laughs> it's also a really good idea to keep a, you know, when you're doing these logs, as you mentioned, review with someone. It's also a good idea to keep a, keep a log of what you're doing to help these kinds of analysis.
1: They did. They did. Um, they mentioned that somewhere in here that, um, they actually started that right away, right here. Oh, excellent! Publication of the outage. In the spirit of transparency, we kept track of progress and notes in a publicly visible Google document. We also streamed the recovery process on YouTube with a peak viewer count of around 5,000. It was the second most popular stream on YouTube for several hours. And they also used Twitter. So they were keeping everything public. They were letting people know know what was going on. Um, Now, jumping down here. One of the things which isn't obvious from this is we have a public monitoring website located at monitor.gitlab.net. Unfortunately, the current setup for this website was not able to handle the load produced by users using this service during the outage. Fortunately, our internal monitoring systems were not affected. Now, since GitLab uses gitlab.com to develop GitLab, the outage meant that for some time it was harder to get work done. Most developers could continue working using their local Git repositories, but creating issues and such had to be de- had to be delayed. To publish the blog post, we used a separate GitLab instance we normally use for sensitive workflows such as security releases, and this allowed us to build and deploy a new version of the website while GitLab.com was unavailable. So they're really eating their own dog food here, but. It caused an issue where they weren't actually able to build GitLab because they didn't have GitLab.
0: It's like a bootstrapping problem.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now they go into uh, a bunch of root cause analysis and they've broken it up into two main problems, GitLab being down and it taking a long time to restore GitLab. I'm not going to read through all these things, but they are interesting. I encourage people to go and read them. Um Now, down under reco- improving recovery procedures, this is very interesting. Number one, update PS1 across all hosts to more clearly differentiate between hosts and environments. PS1 being the prompt in your bash shell. Maybe other shells as well.
0: Right, yep, that's a very... It's just a to have
1: host name. Just yep. to have host name. Or maybe a different background for production or a different background for P- for DB1 or DB2.
0: Yeah, I've seen that I've seen places that'll do, th- that's that's the best I've seen places that'll do like message of the days or other th- login messages when you run it with a big you know, this is the mm-hmm. production master be careful. Mm-hmm. But I like the PS1 that one it's, you know, you can't miss it, it's always right there.
1: Yep Uh, scrolling down there's, a, there's interesting things here more snapshots, more snapshots, move staging to the ARM environment uh And even recently, I was hearing about some places take the approach of making staging the hot backup for production. And somewhere further down here, did I put it in the show notes? Uh, Scrolling up. Yes, here it is. I don't remember where I saw it. Probably Hacker News. But someone proposed to constantly recreate staging from production's backup. This way, we could have an up-to-date staging version and frequently tested backup recovery process. That's a really good idea. I like that a
0: lot. I like that a lot as well. And then, you know, with uh, with appropriate monitoring, you can get you know a really clear idea yep. of when things are breaking.
1: And then, if things are totally lost, you move production onto the staging hardware.
0: Mm-hmm. There you go,
1: and it so should just just, just... everything over here, and there you go. Uh, number nine I like, automated re- testing and recovering of Postgres database backups. Because it doesn't sound like this is a huge database from the sounds of it. It's not a huge database. It's mul- not multi-terabytes.
0: Right, so, it's the kind of scale that you should be able to, you know, it doesn't it doesn't eat tens of servers. That's not a huge, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: One of the things that they mention is that their current PG dump backups are three days old. It's because they perform them on a secondary because PG dump can put quite a, pressure, a lot of pressure on a database. I've never noticed that. I've never noticed that it creates a lot of pressure.
0: Could it be? Because
1: hmm. what it does is it creates a, a transactional-based copy of the database. And so what you're writing, what you're dumping is uh, like a snapshot of right. the database. Right. So it doesn't affect – it should not – it should only be – read and write capabilities and if you split that onto another host where you're you're dumping on a separate client you're all you're doing is reading and sending the data off somewhere you're not actually then writing it to local disk
0: right so if that if those reads are the things that are causing too much pressure then that's a, a sign that you have some larger problems
1: yeah. they, they don't say what's going on they don't say what kind of load but they are seeing a load so they know what they're doing mm-hmm. um then the, then the rest of the article further down has a bunch of troubleshooting for, if you were affected by this outage, what can you do to get around it, and things like that. Um, but basically, some people who created a project after a certain time, and then created issues and loaded stuff up, it's all gone.
0: Yeah, that that's very sad.
1: But hopefully people have a local Git checkout Mm -hmm. of what they have. Right, thankfully
0: Git is very distributed and hopefully that there is a minimum of actually hard,
1: lost data. But for the issues and stuff, uh, hmm. issues... What did they say here? Uh, I forget now. Yep, they did lose issues. So... I, I hope there's a way. I don't back up the issues no. I raise on GitHub. I certainly don't either. It's only the code that's backed up.
0: And some of those are the you know important ones where you just suddenly had that thought, or you'd put in a lot of work, or you had you know here's an important update to this. Yep. I will say that this has been a great opportunity. Like the the thing you were mentioning from Hacker News for the just the general transparency of it to generate a lot of questions, generate a lot of you know a great. A great reason to start comparing your backup procedures to talk about your Postgres configurations, talk about, you know, here's the problems with scale we're having. How could this have helped you? And maybe fix some things before you have a similar GitLab style out incident. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <sighs> Knock on wood.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I hope it's never me.
0: I hope it is never me. Well, Mr. Dan... Is there any other tips you'd like to give to our kind viewers about this story?
1: Check to make sure your backups are happening.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think that is entirely appropriate. And hey, don't be too hard on GitLab. They're doing this in a good way. Um, I still think they're a really neat service and a valuable open source project. So go check them out. Maybe host a few repos. It should all work now. And uh, we'll probably be touching them on this story again. So that brings us To our final sponsor tonight, and that's DigitalOcean. Go on over to DigitalOcean, you can use promo code SnapOcean and get yourself started with a cloud hosting environment. It's just so easy. They're the simple cloud hosting provider. It's 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 not like some of the other big ones where you're you have a, a giant, confusing, constantly chasing API or a website that really only a mother could love. No. DigitalOcean, they're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server, really out of anyone there. Users can create a cloud server in fifty five seconds. So you know, hey, you need a new server because you got to make a third uh, a third replica for your database so you can do a proper recovery. DigitalOcean makes that really easy. Plus, it's all SSD, so you know you've got fast storage. They've got additional block storage that you can attach to any of your droplets. Plus, they've got nice extras like private networking. So, network data in between droplets in the same data center? That doesn't count against your quota. Speaking of quota, it's just so reasonable. Go on over to DigitalOcean.com. Simple, transparent pricing. Just click on the pricing page. Standard droplet pricing, you can see it here. They've got both monthly and hourly Really, the hourly is great because sometimes, exactly in that case, just as we were talking about with GitLab, you might need a you know a nice big server for only a couple hours. Bang, here. Six cents an hour, you can get four gigs memory, two core processor, 60 gig SSD disk, and four terabytes of transfer. Then you just add on some block storage there. That's enough to get a lot of work done and certainly enough to replicate a, a database, too. If that's not enough for you, they really have started adding a lot of the formerly enterprise-only features. They've got monitoring, and they've got load balancing. Monitoring is in beta, but go check it out. Load balancing, that's no longer beta. You can get it right now, today. If that's not enough, their interface is simple. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt, and I'm sure more coming soon. Plus, they've got a great community. You've probably already been there. It's getting to the point where you Google, hey, how do I do this on Linux? How do I restart an Nginx server on Ubuntu? DigitalOcean is the first place that shows up because they hire real editors to take community submissions and turn it into awesome documentation. So go over to DigitalOcean, use the promo code SNAPOcean. That tells them you're thankful they support this show, TechSnap. Hey, we're thankful too. Thank you, DigitalOcean. And that brings us to this week's feedback. First up, we've got a letter from Mark. He's asking, should I convert to FreeNAS? Hey guys, great job taking over the time where the show where Chris and Alan left off. Well, thank you very much. We're uh, trying our best. I have a question about migrating my NAS system from Windows 7 to FreeNAS. I currently run Windows 7 with two mirrored 3TB drives that I use to backup mostly family photos and Apple time machine backups. I've heard a lot about FreeNAS from listening to the show and even played around with it in a VM, but I'm hesitant to make the switch. I want a system that is not going to require a big learning curve to reliably manage my data or have to constantly be messing with it. I'm sure we've all had systems like that where it's fun to learn, but you're constantly tinkering and upgrading and it's more work than it's worth sometimes. I want to be able to just set it up and forget about it. For my use, FreeNAS would be a better backup solution than I currently have. Would it be? There we go. That's a little bit clearer. My biggest concern is... Longevity of the files. I also don't want. I also want what's easiest to keep updated as software becomes obsolete over the years. I haven't had the Windows set up long enough to have dealt with this yet. If I did switch to FreeNAS, should I continue to run mirrors as this seems the simplest, or should I set up something else? Does FreeNAS have options that notify me of disk failures, and if so, how hard is it to replace the failed disks? Thanks for the help, guys, and keep up the good work. What do you think of Mark's question?
1: He asks if he should switch to FreeNAS. Free yes.
0: <laughs> Simple. I'm sorry, that's a very
1: flippant answer. But uh, I, I'm not sure if he has one box or two boxes, if the only box he has is the Windows 7 box. but
0: I think that's just the one he's using as the back. It sounds like he must have some iOS devices yeah, or, then, or Mac
1: OS. Yeah, so... He has Windows 7 with two mirrored drives, but I wasn't sure if there was anything else in there. Um, Now, yes, I think it'd be better off with FreeNAS than with um, Windows 7, because FreeNAS, if if anything, will give you ZFS snapshots and ZFS uh, checksums. Um, Checksums are a huge win just right there. Now, indeed. FreeNAS is easy to upgrade. It's been used for years and and that's basically what it, it's how they upgrade right. it will let you know about disk failures and how hard is it to replace well I don't know what box you have if you've already got got a system um, if it's a tower case you're gonna have to power it off open it up take out the drive put the other drive in but if it's a rack mount case and I don't think it is it may it may be hot swap and you just put in the That'd take out nice. the old drive put in the new drive Um but, yeah, it, it should just work. But it is going to be a learning curve for you. Um, most people run FreeNAS off uh, a thumb drive. Oh, and that right. can be an internal thumb drive or an external thumb drive. And I like the idea of an internal thumb drive. And often people run that as a mirrored pair of thumb drives in case that thumb drive dies. Nice. That way it'll still um, still boot or, you know, whatever. Yeah, because then the only thing on the drives is your data. And if you're OS gets hosed, you just install you just burn FreeNAS to another thumb drive, put it in and boot up the system and it works um, Can it so also boot
0: regard, off a CD or DVD?
1: I don't know I'll have to look into that later I think everyone But everyone should have switched USBs anyways. M- Most of what I've seen, everyone uses a USB drive Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think it should work, but the issue I have is how's he going to get his data from the existing drives to the new drives? Right it's almost like he has to buy new drives in order to start using the new system. Maybe you can borrow a three terabyte drive from, from someone. Yeah, you have a couple friends
0: over. with external hard drives that have some free space yeah. or
1: something like that. Or or buy some new hard drives. Yeah, and, and it really
0: depends on the size of his current current array. It might be somewhere yeah. where you could, yeah.
1: And what you could do is copy all the... Oh, but it's on Windows and he's got to copy know. it over. Oh, the
0: Windows part uh, I, makes it a lot harder.
1: I think you should ask on the FreeNAS forums. I have a Windows 7 box with all this data on it. I want to copy it to FreeNAS. I'd be surprised if somebody hasn't already done that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I do think it seems like a great fit. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a little, it's, it'll definitely be some work to transfer, but it should be way lower overhead once he's put in yeah. the time to learn the systems. And yeah. it's really designed to be appliance, which from his letter, it really sounds like that's what Mark wants.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Please try it,
0: and then let us know how it went. We'd I'd I'd love to once you're once you're on the free Nest setup. I'd love to hear a follow up email.
1: Yes, please.
0: All right. Next in this feedback bag.
1: This will be hard for you to read. I apologize. It's a bunch of snippets from the original.
0: That's okay. You're allowed to make me work. But that's what the co-host agreement is. All right. So this is from author j and it's follow up on bacula so i wanted to follow up on my backup slash bacula questions first though i quickly thank you for the script it took me some time to understand it i am going to adopt it for use with ansible and he uh, writes here that he'll ping us back when he's implemented that's great please do we love to hear that now to what i understood from your answer all right, so this looks like it's uh, applying. So you take FreeNAS one ZFS snapshot, and you send it with ZFS send, and then ZFS receive to receive that on the other end on the second FreeNAS, and then using Bacula there, or should it be FreeNAS one snapshot, then using that snapshot, Bacula sends it to Bacula on FreeNAS. Oh, and then he says, do you have your databases on bare metal servers or in jails? If the latter what should I additionally be aware of for backing them up? I have Buzzgrass and my SQL databases running. Alright, that's a lot. Let's start to unpack that. So, we,
1: we talked to Jay last week. He asked about how to, how to do do backups with jails and snapshots and I sent him a, a script off GitHub. GitHub? Yes, off GitHub that I use on my, my servers. And he has two options here, and you could do the first one, but I'm actually doing the second one. So basically, I snapshot, uh, my main my server is being backed up. And then with Bacula, I back up the snapshot. Okay. And then it goes to the Bacula storage daemon, and that sits on another server.
0: Um, is, is there ZFS under the storage daemon yes,
1: there? Yeah, on okay. both source and destination. Now, what you could do is do the snapshots and a send-receive in addition to that, and that way you have two backups over there, you have a backup in Bacula, and then you have a duplicate of the live system over mm, there. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to get a, get around to trying that. Or it at might least, be good
0: practice with ZFS Send and Receive, which is cool on its own right.
1: It is, and I've tried to get it working, and I didn't, just because I gave up.
0: I mean, if you already have the bacula tool, right, then it just works.
1: No, but I I want the ZF send receive for some other things because um, if you're sending from a remote system, it only sends you the diffs, only Uh, the writes that have happened since last time. Whereas if you back up the whole file, you, you wind up backing up more data. So I think a send receive would actually be less data for me to back up. That makes sense. Now... Well, less data over the network. I'd still be backing up the same amount. Right, the amount. same L- total, L- yeah. yeah. So, um, my databases are both on the host and on in a jail. And in both cases, I do a PG dump to a remote client, not on the host. And then I back up that dump from the remote client. So... The reason I do it that way is that I don't trust a backup of the raw database files despite so many people saying that, oh, it's fine, it'll just work. I like having um, a dumped plain text that I can load in from scratch because that's probably what I'm going to wind up doing sometime in the future. Right, and Plus, it seems like that might
0: be easier to work with other tools or to bootstrap the new cluster. You just you know, mm-hmm. feed that SQL in.
1: Plus... It means you can restore it to any OS. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Any file system, not just the file system that you backed up from. So that's what I suggest. Please try it and let us know what happens.
0: Thanks for writing, Jay. All righty, and our final bit of feedback this week. This is from author Redacted asking about a possible malware distributor. Hello, chaps. Well, hello back. Just wanted to ask your opinion on a thing. Note that this message itself is private. You can, of course, tell Benji the show, as we are, if the results are relevant. Someone today got in touch with me, very concerned about their phone security. Historically, they let someone help them, here in quotes, with their phone, and now she has an app which she never installed. Sounds like this user is not the most technically literate, so uh, here this author is trying to help their friend, which is very admirable. Uh, she's not technically technologically literate to the point of not being confident about her putting a pin on the lock screen. All right. So it's from a certain publisher here, also redacted. I looked for traces of them online, and what I can find seems to be subterfuge apps, apps that look legitimate, but can be installed by rogue friends to hack their victims' phones installable under the guise of helping. So something where they could, you know, it looks like an official app, but is actually nefarious. Yep. Many thanks and thank you for being a point of trusted reference. Well, thank you for writing. Tell me more, Dan.
1: I looked it up. I found the app. I found the the provider. I found it hosted I found the app hosted on some respectable sites, but I wasn't able to determine whether or not it was actually Bad. I couldn't determine if it was malware, and so that's why I've redacted the name and some parts of the email because I couldn't confirm or deny mm-hmm. that it that it was that it was malware. Um, but the story to take from this is: don't let non-trusted people have your phone.
0: Yep. In today's um, age, the phone has so much of your data; it contains so much yep. personal information. It's just you have to be more yep. trusting with it,
1: and. I didn't even put the, the author's name in here, but if they could get back to us and let us know whether or not they got the app off the phone, um, whether or not they actually found um, any data that had been compromised, or, you know, just let us know. I'm sorry I wasn't able to con- confirm it, um, because I don't want to go maligning someone who is actually a, val- valid, um, sure. it's actually a valid app, so right. I'm sorry, I couldn't couldn't help you there.
0: So this is just another reminder that it's a good time to make sure that your phone is backed up and that you have provisions. This might be Mm -hmm. a time, if I was that user, I might consider just doing a factory reset. So make sure you have, you can, I'm in a position to do that. What do you got for us this week, Dan? I'm always excited about the Rockin' Roundup. Well,
1: in my day-to-day work, I encounter a lot of people that that do a, a lot of real good stuff. And one of the things they do is try and stop the bad guys. And so when I stumbled across this website, which basically provides you with um, ransomware keys. What do you getting? Well, people's servers and computers are being taken over by ransomware, where they encrypt all the data and they say, we've got your data, give us some money, your data never comes back. Um, But fortunately, it's not always your unique key per person. Uh-huh. Or maybe they figured out back back um, reverse-engineered the master key, the right. private key. Right, if they aren't deriving so those. Right. Yeah. And that's what they have here on nomoreransom.org. And basically, they have the good news, the bad news, and more good news. Um, if you get attacked by ransomware, come and have a look here answer may be here.
0: It's awesome. It's nice to have a it's nice to have a uh, something that you can do. It's a terrible situation. Oh no, our whole samba server just got encrypted. What do we do? And for a lot of companies like so far they've only had the choice of all right, you either pay or you had backups.
1: Yep. And um, it, it it seems like they want you to send them some information so they identify the type of ransomware please fill in this form send it to us i don't know what the feedback uh, what the turnaround time is but it may be better than paying yeah and that that's the way this will stop if people stop paying yep the people move no on so to things other things. doing this yeah exactly
0: uh, i hope so cuz that sucks yep okay next story there's been a semi-critical Intel Atom C two thousand system on a chip flaw discovered, and a hardware fix is required. That is a major bummer.
1: Yes, um, basically, these chips are dying, and they're in. Uh, often, uh, a friend friend of mine, a coworker, said that he can't remove the chip because it's soldered onto the board. So basically, what he has to do is get a new a new board. Uh, Or a new um, a router, and it's in a lot of fixed appliances. So that really sucks. This is not good. This is not good. Is there any? uh, What What is the flaw? Do you know? Um, it's really funny. Uh, The thing that comes to mind is tin whiskers, but that is not what is happening here. Um, it's just a minor flaw in which it actually stops functioning, but they're not actually sure how long it's going to take, but that they have a feeling that all of them are ultimately vulnerable. And they have fixed it in newer ones, but it seems that the operating clock for the low-pin count bus can stop working. And when that stops working, it's basically, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah. Oh boy, that sucks.
0: Um the chat rooms informed me that the uh, Scaleways Scaleway, which is a cloud provider that had individual ARM boards and now they do X86 as well. I guess they're all this chipset. So that'll be interesting to see see what that looks like on mass, and that's very unfortunate.
1: Uh, I can't imagine the warranties. Yeah. No I just can't. Do. It's massive.
0: Okay, well. It's every then, let's,
1: manufacturer's nightmare.
0: Yeah, right? yeah uh, Let's move on to something, well, not any better, but different. So, what is Ticket Bleed?
1: <sighs> we remember Heartbleed.
0: I sure do. Who could
1: forget? Well, this is similar, but different. In fact, it, it, it's a lot smaller in the amount of data that it leaks. It's only 31 bytes of uninitialized memory, but it's also a much smaller range of hardware. Um, if I recall correctly it's 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 on the f5
0: oh yeah f5 big System. IP load balancers I believe
1: right yeah which I have nothing to do with. I, I, I've never used these. This is not not your everyday um, website. It's basically the load balancer, but right. it's still a big deal because there there are a lot of these around, um,
0: and obviously a lot of traffic flows through them, right?
1: Yep, and you don't want to be leaking that data because it's a like you said, it's a lot a lot of different people, a lot of different data going through. But it's incredible the difference in, in the amount of data that that is leaked between ticket bleed and HeartBlade. Because it was 64k in Heartbleed, but it was only 31 bytes Wow. Bleed. but That's it, a big it's on the proprietary F5 TLS stack. This is not Open SSL; it's just the F5 TLS stack. So it's not affecting you unless you're going through one of these devices. But you don't know if you you're going. You have no through idea, models. and they're yeah, they're it's a pretty popular brand of load balance. So yikes. So there is a fix. There's okay. a coordinated. The, the, the release was delayed. Ooh, it was on February eighth. So there is a release. So it's no. Oh, oh wow.
0: Oh, it looks like if you go, uh, they've got a they've got a story as well about uh, you can find a story of how it was found as well as a technical walk through over on yes. Filippo.io. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Always a good thing to kind of understand. I'm sure it's it's harder to to understand this because it is a proprietary stack and it doesn't... I mean, OpenSSL is certainly not easy to understand, but at least you can look at it.
1: Yep. Yep. This is bad.
0: All right, well then, on to our next story. Yahoo, MSN are both being struck by an advanced malvertising campaign. That is also no good.
1: Advertising is just... uh, The reason people... um, put malware into advertising because it's harder to detect. And it's a way of an introducing a threat vector into just about everyone's computer. And you get someone else to, deli- to deliver it for you. Someone else is doing the ad campaign. Uh, it's not like you have to get someone to come to you. You get someone else to take your attack to them. And really, the thing that you have to do Ad blockers. Yes, and don't click on stuff.
0: I know it's funny. We've we've built this whole infrastructure to like dynamically load things from third parties at render time. I mean, slowing things down, and then, I mean, obviously we need we need some ads for monetization for some websites or whatever. But yeah, it's just such an easy vector for things to slip in to try to exploit you. Go back
1: to static images. Yeah. Right. Just. Plain static images. I don't if
0: it's if it's simple and unobtrusive. I'm, there's way less of a chance that I'm going to object or banner upset. ads. I remember banner yeah, ads exactly, ads that you can actually scroll past and are you know they're
1: not flashy yes. and they're not crazy. Yes. They
0: don't pop yes. up.
1: Yes. Basically, it, it, it's attacking um, a known problem on Internet Explorer. Ah. So if you click in the advertisement, you, you're screwed. So. If you patch your shit, you're not vulnerable to this.
0: Once again, everyone, patch your shit. Patch your shit. All right, let's keep this roundup rolling. Factory that made exploding Galaxy Seven, Galaxy Note Seven, excuse me, batteries catches fire. So we heard you like fire. Uh, Let's put some more fire in your fire.
1: I'm sorry, but I had to laugh at laugh at this. I know it's a terrible thing, and I, I I really hope that. Everyone is okay, but this is just terrible. We all know about the exploding Galaxy 7 uh, Note 7 that would catch fire. I mean, these are the ones that were not allowed on the planes, right? You yes, couldn't they even were. bring one on the plane. So. Same
0: ones that I believe uh, Samsung started rolling out an update that would permanently disable them.
1: Yep. <sighs> so, and then this one happened. Yep. They just just
0: want the memory to be gone, burn the factory to the ground, we'll just start fresh with a new factory, new batteries, new phone.
1: This is just sad. Yes, I do hope
0: that no one was injured, and that's surely a a loss of a huge amount of equipment and infrastructure. But it's only
1: equipment, I hope. Yes, exactly.
0: Okay, so to go back to a theme we had earlier in the show, which is email privacy. Yes. A U.S. judge has ordered Google to hand over emails stored on foreign servers to the FBI. Is yep. this right?
1: Yes, it's right. And I've heard about this before, whereas um, if the information is local, no, I'm sorry, you, you, you have certain rights. But if the server is overseas, no, you don't have the same rights. And so they're just basically saying, hey, listen, you can send us that data now because you know it's not stored in the US anymore. But there is some sort of issue where... Google regularly transfers data from one data center to the other without the customer's knowledge. Such transfers do not interfere with the customer's access or interest in the user data. Even if the transfer interferes with the account owner's control over this information, his interference is minimal and temporary. So I don't really get how they can say that just because it's stored overseas means we can get access to it. I really do not find that, you know. Transferring like email, I don't get why why they think that, oh, yeah, we won't touch your email if it's here. But if it's over there, we can have it, right? Right, right? Yeah. Um,
0: kind of want to play fast and loose or whatever is the maximal benefit to them or gets them the most information, regardless of if it kind of makes sense or if it, you know fits into the actual schema of how this should work or how customers think about it or how the public thinks about it.
1: Yeah. No. Stop it. Stop it.
0: Uh, all right. Well, in slightly better news, Vizia, yes. we were talking about them in a past show. They have now settled with the FTC. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay $2.2 2 and delete all that data they spied on you and got.
1: I want to know, did they give the data to anyone else?
0: Right. Yeah, this doesn't say, are the
1: this advertising networks that
0: bought this data, are yep. they required to delete it, or... Yep,
1: yep. yep. And th- this was a, a TV that basically was snooping on stuff that was happening in the home. Um, right, it was using like
0: computer vision type things to figure out what you were watching based on what was being sent to the display, if I recall.
1: Yep. And that's okay if you agree to it. Sure, sure. And you know it's happening. But no one consented to this. Where are the ethics? Yeah, where I mean, are the do, ethics? It's not hard to do the right thing. Do it. Yep. Stop being a sneaky bastard.
0: Like I, can, I can see it. You know, you're like you're this either a developer or marketer or whatever. You're like, hey, we can do this thing. It's interesting. Look, we solved the problem with technology. It's really just like Jurassic Park. Like, yes, we can do it. Should we do it? If so, how? And it really, I mean, companies should get this. Just in terms of. It's better long term for your image. Like, sure, roll out the new features, but just do it in like an easy way. Make it like, Mm -hmm. yes, just I click yes when I turn the TV on. Fine. But longer term, it'll be better for you to be ethical and upstanding as a company. And now,
1: yeah, exactly. Like, I I know certain companies keep track of what I watch on their websites. That's okay. Just don't give it to anyone else. Yes, exactly. If
0: you need to, if you want to use it for your own internal reporting metrics, better to make the service better. I'm okay with that. Or I won't use their service, but at least then I have the choice and I'm informed.
1: And I want them to know what I'm watching because I want those shows to continue. Hey, yeah, right,
0: exactly. So sometimes it's it's an important part, but we need to establish these Mm -hmm. ground rules.
1: There are guidelines. There are Uh. boundaries. Obey them. Yeah.
0: All right, so right on that same subject of ethical rules and shoulds and should nots, Mm -hmm. WordPress kept users and hackers in the dark. While secretly fixing critical zero-day vulnerabilities?
1: My first response is, you say that like it's a bad thing. I don't have a problem with a vendor keeping a vulnerability secret until it's fixed. Sure. Or at least released. And that's basically what happened. A lot of people have an automatic update function on their WordPress websites. I know I do. And so when this option was available, it got upgraded automatically, and I didn't have to do a thing. Nice. Um, now the problem is, there's probably a lot of people out there that don't have it automatic, and this is where the problems arise. Just get it patched, and you'll, you'll, you'll sleep better at night.
0: Yes, and WordPress is such a high target that mm-hmm. you'd really have that enabled. I mean, maybe if you're like a dedicated WordPress administrator who's, administrator who's going to patch it immediately and knows what they're doing, yeah, okay, sure, but everyone else, 99%, just... You need it to stay secure, or you were. The second of new vulnerability is out, there will be a series of bots ready to take your
1: website. But if you can upgrade automatically, you should. Why not? Why bother? Why why have to? You know, it it may be released nine o'clock one night, and by the time you come in in the morning, it's already patched.
0: Yep. Nope, I agree. I think that's critical, and it's great that they they have that. It's great that they. Fixed, I and do. it does sound like they did. It had responsible disclosure, got it patched, then yeah. let all the details out. So I think that's great. Great. Okay, next in the roundup. Diehard coders just rescued NASA's Earth science data. Mm-hmm.
1: I think this story so, is awesome. Yes, and it's at Berkeley. How do we know the name Berkeley? YBSD. Yes, we do. So, basically... There's all these people hanging around, rescuing climate data, and there's a lot of people doing similar things. What they're doing is they're downloading the data, um, tagging it, and saving it somewhere safe, because what they're worried is that all this stuff is going to disappear. Basically, they uh, they found the data by looking at an old FTP server. No, they found a buried link to the old FTP yeah. server and they started downloading it. By the end of the day, he had all the data for 2016 and some for 2017. But it's going to take at least another 24 hours to finish. So everyone started looking around for it, downloading it, grabbing it, and archiving it. And I have such admiration for this effort because this is very important. You can't dispute science. The science is there. It's proven. Deleting the data isn't going to make it untrue.
0: Nope. And then especially, like, a lot of this is publicly funded data or publicly available data that that the public deserves to have access to and is important, really, for our society and our whole civilization. (sighs)
1: So
0: it's awesome to see just, like, um, individual people banding together, using their skills to try to put a stop to this, or at least, you know, keep that information freely available.
1: Yep. This is a great use of technical skills.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to the final story in this week's roundup. Are you bored with your ho-hum cloud backups? Use Usenet instead. Now, how does that work?
1: Usenet is an old cooperative system. Basically, you upload data to a server, and then it gets distributed to a whole bunch of other servers. Um, I was familiar with news groups, and so there are right. some binary news groups where you could upload data, and that's what they're saying you could do here. And I'm sure it would work, but I don't think you're going to be able to store huge amounts of data in there. But you could update some of your basic information. Um, I wouldn't store anything sensitive there without encrypting it. Right, but that's that's also not hard to do. Um, if all you want to do, you know, I think it'd be a great place to store some important keys.
0: Yes, lots of you know small things, things that are yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. This almost makes me think that you you could have like um, a tar snap like service that instead of abstracting Amazon storage, you know, chunked it up, encrypted it, and shipped it up to Usenet it. Yep. That would work. Well, and I think the the point here too, is even if it's like not the most reliable or you can't store that much, Hey, even just one more backup, right? takes you from two backups to three or three to four. That's never bad.
1: It would be interesting just, just to try it and see how long it lasted.
0: All right. Well, that's the end of the roundup. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to the audience this week?
1: No, I don't. Thank you very much.
0: It's been an and awesome show. Thank yes, you for giving has... up your Valentine's day to do this. I, uh, I hope the other in your life appreciates that. I certainly do.
1: Thank you. See you next week.
0: Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Tech Snap. This has been episode 306, live-streamed on February 14th, 2017. If you'd like to see more of this program, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's this program. There's archives. Plus, there's like a ton of great other shows. I don't know. You should check it out. Plus, and there's a live stream. Ah, it's It's awesome. If you'd like to know more about us, I'm Wes, that's Dan. Hit us up on Twitter, at wespain at TechSnap underscore Dan, and we'll see you next week.